Today we've come to the fifth of the seven letters that Jesus dictated to John um, for seven churches in what they then called Asia, we call it Turkey. And as I've said over the last four weeks, each week as we read these seven letters, it's going to be like waiting for the mailman to come because these letters are not just written to those churches in Turkey back in John's day, they're written to churches all over the world um, for the church even of today. And so as we read these seven letters, we're going to discover that at least one of these letters is going to be a letter from Jesus to our church. And each week as we're going to be reading these letters, um, we're going to be asking ourselves the question, is this one the letter which is from Jesus to us? So today's letter is the letter to the church at Sardis. But before I read that, I actually want to read something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. It's when Jesus was talking with his disciples about the end times. And so much, and this is just so relevant um, to what we're reading right now as we're reading these letters to the seven churches. And so I'm going to read Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 51, but I'd encourage you, when you go home, why don't you read the whole of Matthew chapter 24, and you'll see how it it fits in with what we've been hearing already. Okay. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things... You know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So then, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, now for today's reading. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. 
And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before my angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus wrote to this church at Sardis, he, he began at the same as he did with all of the other letters by describing himself. And, and here he describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, when the book of Revelation talks about the seven spirits, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. The number seven represents fullness, completeness. And, um, and the seven angels, sorry, the seven stars refers to the angels of the seven churches. If you can remember right back to the start, we got a picture of Jesus walking among lampstands. And the lampstands, the seven lampstands represented the churches. And that's a really good image for a church because a lampstand does not generate its own light. The job of a lampstand is to hold up the light source. And, of course, the light is the light of Christ himself given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. The job of the church is to hold Christ up to be the light of the world. So what Jesus is reminding us of here when he describes himself like this, he is reminding us that he is the power source of the church. The source of life and light in the Christian church comes from the Spirit of God. And this is going to be very important for us to remember as we see what problems are unfolding in this church in Sardis. The next part of the letter would normally be the bit where Jesus would say something good about the church. He would commend them for something good that they've been doing. That is, of course, unless there's nothing good to say about that church. And imagine what a terrible indictment that would be. If when Jesus looks at a church, he goes, right, I'm going to say something good about them now. And he looks at the church and goes, hmm, no, I've got nothing, nothing to say. And that's pretty much the predicament that this church in Sardis were in. The only thing, the only good thing that Sardis had was a reputation. But as far as Jesus was concerned, that reputation was false. They had a reputation of being alive. But that reputation had nothing at all to do with reality because as far as Jesus was concerned, they were spiritually dead. Now, in my experience, when, when somebody moves to a new town and so they're looking for a church to join, they, they have a list of things they're looking for in a church. And usually, usually, pretty high up on that list is they'll be looking for a church that's alive. Would you agree? 
Yep, pretty much, because who wants to join a dead church? Hey, we can make it dead ourselves enough. We, we'd rather join one that's alive. And the thing is, most of us feel that we have the ability to be able to pr- pretty quickly assess whether a church is alive or not. But really, how do we do that? How do we assess if a church is alive or whether it's spiritually dead? What do we base our judgment on? Well, often the first method would, that, that gets employed is, is to ask around. Well, what kind of reputation do the churches in town have? Which, which church is the alive church? That one there? Right, well, we'll go and try that one first. But the problem is, um, all we've got to do is look at the example of the church in Sardis. It had a reputation of being alive. If you asked, which is the alive church in the district? They'd go, Sardis. They're, they're the ones that are alive. But as far as Jesus was concerned, they were spiritually dead. All right, well, well, what other methods can we use to, well, we could assess our experience and and, and say, well, what kind of feel does a church service have to it? Does a church have a great band? Does the music really move me? Is the leader of that church somebody I really enjoy listening to? Or are the people of that church young and enthusiastic or, or are they old and so they don't have much energy? Then again, another method would, would be to, well, let's just join the biggest church in town. After all, it's got to be the one that's alive. You know, churches get big for a reason, surely. But then again, we know that Jesus said that people will flock to whoever will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Another method would be, right, oh, well, let's see which church has the best programs. Sunday schools, youth groups, kids clubs, exercise clubs, mums, mums groups, music groups, mops groups, men's sheds, messy churches, whatever else is the flavour of the month. I guess what I'm trying to get you to consider and be conscious of is we live in a consumer culture. And I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, but it is a rare person indeed who is not lured by a consumer culture, even when it comes to church. Uh, And I want you to be aware that the palatability and the marketability of a church can often lead to growth and can very well give the image of that church being alive. But that church may not be spiritually alive at all. Do you know what I mean by palatability and marketability? By palatability, I mean it tastes good, right? It's easy to take in. That's what palatable means. Um, So T-bone steak is palatable. Um, Spinach is not palatable, okay? Now, some of you may get confused by that because some of you might think that spinach is nice. Um, I can't see that possibly being so. Now, so palatability means it tastes good. It's easy to take in. There's no tough teaching. Uh, Not too much that you have to think about. There's not too much that's going to be too challenging or too demanding of you to to change the way you're living. Um, There might be no expectation that that you should be serving God in any way that that you don't enjoy. Um, There might be no demand to change our lifestyle. Nobody's going to make us feel guilty about sin and nobody's going to be telling us this is what you have to believe and this is what you have to do. It's very easy to swallow. And marketability, well, that's all about a church looking good. It's how a church sells itself. And 
And I hope you're not naive enough to believe that churches aren't into marketing. Uh, many churches, particularly the big ones, do marketing very well. But I'm not going to deny, even we here at Bush Disciples, we're a little church, but we market, do marketing in some way. We put up a few posters around town so people know we exist. We run a website that tells us about who we are and what we do. That is a form of marketing. But be aware that the palatability and the marketability of a church will often lead to growth and it can give the image that that church is alive. But in Jesus' eyes, they may be spiritually dead. Earlier in the year, Robin and I were blessed to have more than a week at the Sunshine Coast and we were there for two Sundays. And whenever we go on holidays, we always like to try to go and visit a church nearby where we're staying. By the way, I hope when you go on holidays that you don't have a holiday from church Um, because it's a wonderful thing to be able to go and attend another church um, and, and it just blesses them by being a part of it and it blesses the person, uh, person who goes as well. Anyway, at various times we've, we've visited various churches on the Sunshine Coast. We've been holidaying there for a while. But this time I thought, I'm going to look for a little church plant. I'm going to look for a little church, much like ourselves, because you know, I know how much of a blessing it is when, when people come to St George and they visit our little church here, and it really blesses us. And so I'm thinking, right, I will we'll be a blessing to a little church somewhere on the coast, Whereas if we turn up at a mega church, they're not even going to know we've been. Righto. So how do I do that? Well, I started searching the internet. And I searched and I searched and I searched and I searched and searching for church plants. And there were a few churches that called themselves church plants, but most of them were on what I term as the mega church model. So it was like a really big church. It sent a couple hundred people to start up another one just nearby and, and that sort of thing. But there were two things that struck me. I was reading about a lot of churches when I was looking there. Where are we going to go? There's two things that struck me. The first thing I noticed was that there had been a distinct change in the way some Pentecostal churches marketed themselves. A lot of Pentecostal churches used to use the whole prosperity thing as a way of attracting people. You know, and they would used to say things like, prosper in your relationships, prosper in your job, prosper in your health, prosper financially, and it's all about blessing. But I noticed a distinct change. Some of them were now marketing themselves as being a church of influence. Now, I'd never noticed that before. You you may have noticed this before. I hadn't. And I thought, that's an interesting change. And so they were a church of influence, wanting you to be a person of influence by being one of their number. And who doesn't want to be influential? That was the first thing I noticed. That's just a by-the-way thing. The main thing I wanted to tell you I noticed was the plethora of churches who had, as part of their name, live, live, alive, or living. And I just did a quick search just while I was writing this message of churches on the Sunshine Coast so that I could just give you some examples. Abundant Life Fellowship International, Abundant Life Sunshine Coast Central, River Life Community Church, Good Life Community Church, Life Church Maruchidor, Life Church Warana, Live Church, New Life Christian Church, Life Point Baptist Church, Kiwana Life Baptist Church, Coast Alive Christian Church, River of Life, Coast Life Christian Church. There was 13 there that I just came up with a very quick search on the internet, all at the Sunshine Coast. 
and I'm pretty sure there would be some more. Uh, we churches, we want everyone to know that we're alive, don't we? Yeah? And we're no different here at Bush Disciples. You don't want people in town thinking, oh, they're a dead bunch there. We don't want that, do we? Of course not. And in the English Standard Version that we read from today, it said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The original Greek actually says, you have the name of being alive, but you are dead. And straight away, I, I thought of all of the churches I know who have the name of being alive, either by reputation or by actually having it in their actual name. Now, please don't think that I'm casting any dispersions upon having the name live or life in your church's name. That's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, we considered names like that when we were trying to think of a name for Bush Disciples. I'm wanting you to understand that a church may have a name for being alive, they may have a reputation for being alive. They may have an appearance of being alive. They may even feel to be alive. I mean, a reputation doesn't come from nowhere. But they may not be alive. They may have every appearance of being the most alive church in the whole region, and yet to Jesus they're spiritually dead. Because that's position of Sardis. Now obviously we're looking for different things to what Jesus is looking for. And to that church in Sardis he said, wake up. A better translation would be become alert, be watchful and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Let me tell you a story from Sardis's history. Sardis used to be a very wealthy city, and it was a very strong city and a secure city. Its position meant that it was almost impregnable. That is, until one day, as an army lay siege to that city by night, a soldier climbed a cliff, which was said to be unclimbable, and he entered that city. And they were so sure of their security, they didn't even have a watchman on the city gate. And so this soldier walked up to the city gate, opened the city gate, and the army flooded in. And, that's, and the city that was said to be unconquerable was conquered. And what a blow that must have been to Sardis. But even more of a blow is the fact that they didn't learn from their mistakes. 200 years later, the exact same thing happened again. As another army lay siege to that same city, a group of soldiers followed that same path up that same cliff, entered that same city in the same way, and that city fell for the second time. Sardis had not learned from their error. Once again, while they slept, the enemy got in, opened the gates, and they were conquered. They weren't vigilant. And now Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, wake up, get alert. The city had fallen twice in its history because it was sleeping and now their church is sleeping. What's going to happen to their church? Right. So what is it 
that Sardis was missing, that they had a reputation for being alive, but they were spiritually dead. And let's make this more personal. What is it that we may miss? What is it that, that we would consider something to be alive, but that's so different to what Jesus considers to be alive? Well, firstly, they had become a church who had departed from the basics of the gospel. Jesus said to them, Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. The good news of Jesus Christ continues to be the same old story. It hasn't changed in the last couple of thousand years. It continues to be the hard, narrow road of discipleship that Jesus calls us to walk. Now, unfortunately, to make the Christian message more palatable to the world, the gospel that's often preached and what's often taught, well, the road just doesn't seem to be quite so narrow and the road just doesn't seem to be quite so hard. And Jesus is saying, remember what you heard, keep it and repent. Right? Get back to the basics of the gospel. Get back to the truth. Secondly, they had become a church that had lost the urgency of the gospel. Jesus said, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Now, that's an obvious reference back to Matthew chapter 24, the reading that we began with. And what he's saying is you're not living as if you're expecting me to turn up at any moment. All right? How should we be living if we're expecting the return of Jesus to be imminent any moment? I'll tell you how. Righteous living and the urgency of preaching the gospel. Thirdly, they had soiled their garments. Um, they'd soiled their clothes and so they were about to die. That's even more harsh than my mother. Kids, what's mum do to you? If you've got your good jeans on, you go outside and you play on the grass and you get grass stains on your jeans, what, do, what sort of punishment do you think you're going to get? Do your own washing. Oh, that sounds hideous. That's awful. Yeah? What? You get a smack. Oh, but she's not actually going to kill you, is she? Now, I've read this about soiling our clothes and they're about to die. And I actually thought of the old dynamo, dynamo man. Anyone old enough to remember the dynamo ad on the TV? What a ridiculous ad that was. The dynamo man would turn up at the door and he'd knock on the door and a housewife would greet him and, and she'd appear with grandma's prized tablecloth and he'd get a handful of some kind of grime and rub it in and, and the housewife would go, <laughs> that'll never come out. I'm thinking, eh, not like most housewives I know, a stranger turning up on the door and rubbing grime. And she didn't seem too phased by it all. Now, these soiled clothes are much more serious than that. Jesus is talking about our spiritual clothes. The image that we find in Revelation is an image of bright, shining, white clothes. And what it is is an image 
of the worthiness of Christians in God's eyes. You know, a lot of us, we might feel that no matter how much I say I'm sorry and no matter how many good things I do, I'll never be good enough for God. That is so untrue. The blood of Jesus is so powerful, he can wash us clean and this is the image we're given. No matter how sinful we've been, he makes us pure and holy as if we're dressed in white. We are made worthy. We are made holy when we give our lives to the Lord and our sins are washed away completely. Better than dynamo. But our spiritual clothes can get grubby again. When a Christian soils their clothes, it's because they've become unholy in God's eyes. How can that happen? Well, it happens when those who should be following Jesus start taking on the ways of the world and they cease to be distinctly Christian. And that's what happened in Sardis. The question I found myself asking was, Why wasn't their church being persecuted in Sardis when all of the faithful churches that we've been reading about in this region so far were getting persecuted? Well, in Sardis, their church probably wasn't so hated. When a church ceases to be different to the world, it suddenly becomes much more likable to the world. And the persecutions might end But taking on the unholy attributes of the world soils us spiritually and it's part of our spiritual death. And fourthly, I've already hinted at this one, but they were no longer confessing Jesus Christ in the face of opposition. There is an urgency to call the world to repentance and to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we just don't do that because we're afraid that we're going to offend someone. Did you notice in that Bible reading that Jesus said that that I will be proud of this person's name before my Father in heaven? That reminded me of Luke chapter 9, verse 26, where it says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father of the holy angels. The flip side of that is true. If we openly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ today, he won't be ashamed of us. So that's why they were spiritually dead. Now, I want you to notice that their spiritual life and spiritual death had nothing to do with image. It had nothing to do with style of worship. It had nothing to do with the types of songs that they sang or the types of instruments they had in the church or the programs that they were conducting or how big the church was and it had nothing to do with how old or how physically energetic they were. And life in the church has everything to do with faithfully following Jesus down the hard road of discipleship, righteous living, being vigilant for the return of Jesus and, and, and living our lives in a way that we're expecting Jesus to turn up at any moment, having an urgency of preaching the gospel and never being ashamed of the name of Jesus, no matter how it might offend others. 
That's what makes a church spiritually alive. It's not about following human programs or having a good business model that can then generate some kind of image of life. It's about faithfully following Jesus and doing God's will. And that's why I think it was important that Jesus was describing himself as the one who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits. The source of life in a church is not something we generate ourselves. It's as we are faithful to Jesus and faithful to God. He becomes the source of power. He becomes the source of strength in the church. So, this church in Sardis was spiritually dead. What are they to do about it? Go back to the basics of the gospel. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. If this church in Sardis doesn't wake up, Jesus' judgment is very blunt. And we can actually divide his judgment here into the judgment against the church and the judgment against individuals. The church in Sardis is sleeping. It's guided more by culture than what it is by the word of God or by any sense of Jesus' imminent return. And if it doesn't wake up, Jesus is going to come against it. Now, I don't want Jesus to ever come against me. I pray that this church here will never become the sort of church that Jesus will say to you, I'm going to come against you. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus spells out what it means for him to come against a church. He said he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That can't be an image of anything other than hell and judgment. What a dreadful fate. But not everybody in Sardis has been unfaithful. Jesus said, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When we remain faithful, when we continue living, expecting the return of Jesus and and living in a way that's appropriate for that, our salvation is secure. But have you got ears? Have you heard what Jesus is saying? Is the flip side of this also true? If when we remain faithful to God, Jesus won't rub our names out of the book of life, what's that telling us about those who don't remain faithful? Have you got ears? Are you hearing what Jesus is saying? 
To me, the simple biblical truth written here is that those who are unfaithful and they were taking on the ways of the world and they weren't vigilantly, vigilantly expecting Jesus to return at any moment, their very salvation was at risk. And I said a few weeks ago, if anyone holds to the human teaching of once saved, always saved, um, and I'm going to be clear here again, that's a human teaching that's not in the Bible, that person's going to have a lot of trouble understanding what Jesus is saying in Revelation. And I've already had somebody ask me after that message a few weeks ago whether at some point we could have a bit, bit of a lesson on, on this whole once saved, always saved thing and, and, and look at it biblically. Okay, well, where in the scripture does it hint at this? And Scripturally, can a Christian lose their salvation or not? And I agree, I think we're going to need to do that. So I've decided that, that next week we're going to have a little diversion from our series and, and we're going to look into that very question. Um, so we're going to have a bit of a two-week diversion because next week we're going to be looking at Once Saved, Always Saved. The following week is going to be Easter Sunday. It's come quick, hasn't it, even though it's late in the year? And then we'll be back into our series again. So to sum up, the church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but it was spiritually dead. They'd heard the gospel, they'd received the gospel, but they weren't obeying it. And I find myself wondering how many churches in our world today that we would consider to be alive are actually spiritually dead. And are we one of them? These are the questions we have to consider. Because with good human effort and training, any church can be given the appearance of being alive with enough effort thrown at it. And so the warning here is wake up, remember, obey, repent. Wake up, remember, obey, repent. Wake up from our lethargy. Watch out. Jesus Christ is coming. The Christian life is a life of urgency. Wake up. Remember. Remember the gospel. Remember the urgency of sharing it out in the world. Remember the sacrifice by Jesus Christ and respond to this accordingly. Obey. Obey everything that Jesus has taught us. Obey his commandments of righteousness. Obey his commandments of witness. Obey all of his commandments. Repent. To repent means simply to turn from our present direction and set a new course. There is no such thing as a church that is standing still. If a church isn't alive, it's dying. Wake up, remember, obey, repent. Let's pray. Lord, what sort of reputation do we have? And is this reputation accurate? Or is this church about to die? Lord, give us wisdom to know. Help us to see things as you see them. 
Lord, have mercy on us and wake us up. Help us to remember everything you've taught us and help us to be obedient to you. Lord, give us a heart of repentance, to repent of any way that we've soiled ourselves by taking on the ways of the world. Lord, help us to be the people you want us to be, a people who are eagerly awaiting your return by living in purity and holiness and by being a people who preach the gospel with urgency as if you would return this very day. Lord, breathe your life into us that we would truly be spiritually alive for there is no other kind of alive. Lord, we repent of trying to portray an image of life instead of just being obedient to you and faithfully following you. Come, Lord Jesus Christ, fill us with your Holy Spirit, whom you hold in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen.